Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Peinecker, and we are doing something very special. First of all, I have this really cool, awesome guest, Kyle Bashirs, who came all the way from Mobile, Alabama, to come to my Christian community to talk about Mormonism, but a special flavor of Mormonism. Kyle, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Steve. So this is very exciting. Now, I got to have to tell you folks, we're at my community, Christian community here in Bradenton, Florida, called Christian Retreat. A shout out to Pastor Phil for letting us use the facilities. And a shout out to my homie, Rick Bennett of Gospel Tangents, who's manning the camera. And he's going to be interviewing Kyle this afternoon as well. So this is kind of a one-two punch of Mormon book reviews and Gospel Tangents. So what is so cool about Kyle is, first of all, he has this really, really interesting story about Mormonism. Uh, he's kind of like the Steve Pinecker of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But that's with a capital D and not a lowercase d. We're talking about what are some people refer to as the Strangite Church, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, that's what's, uh, we're going to be talking about that. But I want to give a little background on Kyle, because we actually share a lot of roots. Uh, and it's just so interesting. Uh, we guaranteed 100% interacted with each other probably about 20-something years ago. Would correct. you say that's correct? Correct, yeah. If we had a time machine, we could prove it. But <laughs> Exactly. And the reason why we say that is, is that Kyle and I are from this unique part of the country called Northwest Indiana, just outside Chicago. It's called the region. We are region rats. That's right. And we grew up not far from each other. He was born in the hospital of my hometown community. And so, and also we, I used to work at Borders in Highland, Indiana, which I talk about in Mormon Stories interview, and used to go to Borders all the time. That was the cultural hub of the region. Exactly. That was. <laughs> that was it. It, yeah. it was steel mills, blue collar. And Borders. And Borders Bookstore. Yes, exactly. So all yeah. the uh, intellectuals and the freaks and the geeks all went to uh, Borders That's Books, right. and, and that was a fun time. Bands would show up there. It was just oh, yeah. a good time. Wasn't it just a great, awesome time? Yeah, yeah. And it served uh, coffee. And so that was another important thing. You just didn't, the coffee game in that area was either at like Greek cafes yes. <laughs> that served everything under the sun yep. or borders. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, and, and what's also so cool is actually, so you came, you kind of came of age in the 90s. You're a kid of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Graduated from school, uh, high school in 2003? 2003. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm about a decade uh, older than him. So I graduated in 92. But we definitely uh, hung out with some of the same crowds. You were in a punk band, is that correct? Yes, I was in a punk band. So I had Liberty Spikes, and like my hair was as short as it is like here. Played drums, and uh, did the scene in the region with uh, with some punk rock friends. Punk rock friends. Now this is the thing. My buddies, the Flying Aarons. You guys were a punk band. I don't think he's heard of you, but I know he's heard of Groovatron. Groovatron. I have. If so, if you're watching Groovatron, I was one of those like you know, 14-year-old kids rocking out at your shows. So exactly. You. <laughs> so uh, you guys over at Groovatron, uh, check it out. And also, of course, my buddies at Pod of Thunder uh, also are familiar with Groovatron as well. Awesome. Favorite rock and roll podcast in the world. Not safe for work. So uh, if you're sensitive to that, uh, don't check it out. So we just, we, we, we had so much fun talking last night. Yeah. yeah. We were hanging yeah, out, yeah. we had dinner, mm -hmm. and we just kind of were comparing notes. We were comparing our similar backgrounds and how we probably interacted with each other. But what brings us so weirdly together is that we're two region rats from just outside of Chicago, and yet Mormonism has played a major important role in our lives. And this is the other thing, and maybe I didn't mention this earlier, but Kyle is a pastor of a church. So he's an evangelical pastor from the same part of the country I'm from, and he is fascinated in Mormonism, and in particular, 
the, the Strangite branch, which is, uh, you know, their main congregations in uh, Burlington, Wisconsin. Yep, just outside Bur Burlington, yep. Okay, so that's pretty wild stuff. Now, just a few things. I want to talk about some of the books I have in my collection. My very first book was this from King's, uh, King Strang. I found this at a used bookstore in Michigan, and this was written in the 70s. This is the second edition written by Robert Weeks. Kind of a nice overview. Uh, this is also a book that kind of got a lot of uh, King of Confidence. Uh, not a really good book, would you say? I'll save my comments. Okay, so, <laughs> but this is a, this, here's a book that's definitely commendable. This is a book that has received universal acclaim from many people. Uh, God Has Made Us a Kingdom, James Strang and the Midwest Mormons by Vicki Cleverly Speak. And you yes. have to, uh, let me just, why don't you give a shout out to Vicki? Uh, Vicki Speak is, um, I consider her like my, academic godmother um, from string studies yeah she is the goat when it comes to when it comes to strings so if you want to know anything about their history at least in that particular period of time or um, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about strings plural wives she has uh, the, the end of the book is devoted to kind of what happens to those women and their experiences after that very unique in any of the other books that you're going to read about about james uh, yeah and we got to talk we, we're going to talk about a paper you just gave at john whitmer in a little bit yeah, but sure. i want to just yeah. do a little background because again you know like like i go on mormon stories and it's like okay tell us as an evangelical how did you get interested in mormonism why don't you just kind of give us the backstory what 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 hooked you man what got you interested in this yeah so i've been asked that question a thousand times and i i don't know i mean i can't like pinpoint a moment there is one episode that i think i, I recall when i was a kid that piqued my interest in mormonism but my, my interest in the LDS faith and tradition and history is there's a constellation of answers and experiences, so it's hard to, to pick one. But if I had to, uh, I remember uh, being a, as a young boy, uh, my grandfather was an uh, engineering professor at Purdue Cal, so, which was an a offshoot of Purdue in the area where we grew up. And uh, in his study, he had a lot of different uh, books, and he was very interested in religion. He comes out of the other restoration movement, so Campbell, um, what Sidney Rigdon was before he, he joined the LDS movement. And uh, he was interested in, in the study of religion in general. He had this little blue book on, in his study that I had never really seen before. And um, I, I peeled it back and kind of was like looking at it, interested, and then hand goes back in and Grandpa doesn't really want me to have anything to do, to do with that. And so, of course, that's like telling you know a, a two-year-old like don't press the red button. And so I was like, da, 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 what is this? And uh, you know, in our area, we were talking about this last night. It's it's interesting. It's a very populated area, but there's not a lot of Latter-day Saint presence. Right. And so to like meet a Latter-day Saint or come across one in the Chicagoland area, at, at least at that time, was very rare. Mm -hmm. And so my exposure to Mormonism came from quality sources like Ed Decker's The Godmakers film, which was shown to, to me in a youth group setting, and uh, Walter Martin's The Kingdom of the Cults. And so that, that's kind of, I, I think my experience in the 90s as a, as a child is very typical of an American evangelical youth learning about the, the cults. That is so true. Right? Actually, when you think about it, Walter Martin's books, like, were really Hugely influential. Yeah. And of course, we had Hokama's book Hukuma. in the 50s. Yeah, 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 that's right. He wrote on four the, the movements, four. right? Mm -hmm. I, I, can, I can see the... So the Adventist right Job is Witness, Christian Science, and, and then, Yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so those are like the standard works that a lot of evangelicals would have used to engage Mormonism. If, if we had like a counter-cult canon, mm -hmm. like Walter Martin is a, a staple. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, if, to, to learn about the Latter-day Saint faith and tradition from those sources, uh, your audience <laughs> will, will know that's probably not the best place to start. But that's, that's where I started. Yeah. Um, just from my from my background, you know, and it's fascinating because you know we were talking about this last night. Just to kind of get back to the the, the background of us is that we're from the Chicagoland, Northwest Indiana. In Northwest Indiana is more like we are more Chicago than Indiana, but Chicago don't want to have nothing with us. No. We are in Indiana, but Indiana don't want to have nothing to do with us. They literally so, call us rats. Yeah, we're the, the, the region the rats. rats. Exactly, we're rats. So that's where we're in. But there, you're right. Uh, so I just recall, my dad had a tire shop on Klein Avenue in Highland, Indiana, mm-hmm. right? And just down the street in Griffith, Indiana, was uh, an LDS ward. That's yeah. where it was located. Like the only one in the area. And you're talking like half a million people. Yep. It's... So it was, you just didn't come across it. Right. I, I had more independent fundamentalist Baptists come and knock on my door than LDS missionaries. I don't think we ever had LDS missionaries come to our, to our door that I can remember. And I would say Jehovah's Witnesses probably have a bit bigger well. presence yep. than the Mormons do, wouldn't yep. you say? Yep. So, so all that to say, my experience was, was limited. Yeah. And, and I didn't actually meet a Latter-day Saint until, you know, I, I moved away from the area. And I came across two missionaries and uh, they, they, they had the, the same book that Grandpa told me not to have anything to do with. I'm like, oh, here it's people that, that read the book, and they look like salesmen, so maybe they're selling the book. And they were, they, I, I remember they were talking to, like, an elderly woman who was, like, double-checking her watch. Like, she doesn't really have time for this. And I kind of, like, stayed behind and, like, kept, like, side-glancing. And one of them caught my eye, and so I knew, hey, we're going to have this interaction. And they came to me and they told me the, the, whole, the whole introduction. Um, like, what is the Book of Mormon? And how old were you at this time? I was in my early 20s. Early 20s, Early okay. 20s, yeah. So it was, the, it was the whole introduction of, like, Christ coming to the new world, um, preaching the same gospel, calling disciples, Joseph Smith's restoration, uh, all of it. And it was, frankly, it was overwhelming. Like mm. I, I, it was just like this inundation of like, what in the world? I, I had so many questions, but not enough time. Sure. And they're like, hey, you should, you should call the missionaries and have them come over. And so over the next few years, I would call missionaries and have them come over and introduce me to this new message. Um, and I frustrated their efforts. I was never um, con- converted, probably to their chagrin. But uh, what, I, what I did learn in that experience is what I had been told by my tribe about Latter-day Saints did not match what Latter-day Saints were telling me about their own faith. Mm. And so I had a dilemma. Sure. Is there truth in the middle? Is, is the Walter Martin Hugema a Decker world right? Or are these, these essentially representatives of the church correct? And, and that kind of like honed my focus of like, what, what's the truth here? Yeah. Um, and my, the first book that was recommended to me uh, for an, an academic treatment of the Latter-day Saint history was No Man know, Knows My History. Okay. So, uh, you can imagine I'm off to a wonky start. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and so when you first engaged Joseph Smith through <clears throat> No Man Knows My History, mm-hmm. uh, what, what, what was it like reading that book for the first time and kind of reading about Joseph from uh, maybe a more secular viewpoint? It was, yeah, so I think I was here. I'll be frank. I wanted, I wanted what Walter Martin told me about Latter-day Saint beliefs to be true. Uh, and so reading that book was really confirming a lot of the, oh, he was a fraud. 
there's this magic stuff going on. I had not come across that at, at all. Like, oh, of course this is wrong. But at the same time, there was a little bit, there was a tinge of um, like synchronizing of concerns that Joseph Smith had and like uh, I had about denominationalism, infighting. And that, it made Joseph a bit human. Mm -hmm. If that, I don't know how else to describe it. And, he, he has a concern that, that I shared was, um, well, how do we know? It was basically like religious authority, spiritual authority, right. what is truth, these types of things. And, and uh, so that, that, it set me off on a new kind of trajectory of like, okay, well, let's, let's go back. I want to see the I want to see the notes on this. Like, show me the work, right? Yeah. I want to, and then the next biography I wrote uh, or wrote <laughs> I did not write a biography. I, I read was um, Rough Stone Rolling. Okay, and that really got me into the kind of the academic side of, of yeah LDS. You know, and this fascinating. I I've read Rough Stone Rolling probably at least three times. Mm -hmm. Love that book. It could be as far as I'm concerned, double the size of that thing. I'll keep on reading. I just love. That book, and I love No Man Knows My History, but the one thing I didn't like about No Man Knows My History is that Fawn Brody just assumed that Joseph was a con man and he knew that he was a con man uh -huh. and he was just making this stuff up. And I was like, I don't know what um, would motive. Uh, no, let me, let, me, let me rephrase this here. I know what it's like to be a believer, uh -huh. right? And I also know that when I read Joseph Smith, I think of him more as a believer and not as a con man. He's, it, it, maybe it's, it, it's, a, it's a complicated mix. And so I thought that um, Bushman kind of fleshed it out a little bit because he's a faithful person, mm -hmm. you know? And so he kind of was able to give a faithful interpretation to So I think the two books actually complement each other very yeah, well. Yeah, just a little side tangent. The reason I pointed over here is because you, you asked me earlier about the King of Confidence. And oh, yeah. Um, the oh, king, yeah, the, the king of confidence is yeah. essentially uh, writing about James Strang from the presupposition that he is a con man. Exactly. Um, so you got the king of confidence. Um, yeah, yeah, and, good point. And so this is uh, No Man Knows My History uh, of, of James Strang. Okay, which, which got it. Kind of how I would approach that. Oh, okay. If that makes sense. I like that observation you made. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, he's, it, it was the, the concerns that, that Joseph had is what kind of really got me interested in the the restoration project. And the more you learn about the history, the more uh, fascinating it gets. People ask me, like, why are you interested in, in Mormonism or the LDS story? Like, well, you apparently don't know it, right? How could you not be interested? So, yeah, that's a silly question to me at this point. Um, obviously, uh, I'm not Latter-day Saint. I, I don't believe that Joseph's uh, solutions for the problems that were then dividing churches in his day um, were, were, were true or uh, or I, I don't know. I, I disagree with how he went about fixing things, but the fact that we shared the the, the concern yes. is what hooked me. Well, and this right. is the thing, folks. In one sense, both Kyle and I come from a restorationist background. Mm -hmm. I come from the I was kind of Calvinist was my lineage, but charismatic renewal that my parents got involved in before I was born. Okay, that's a restorationist movement. But you were born into a restorationist church. You attended in my hometown of uh, Munster, yep. Indiana, Southside Christian Church, Christian which church, is a yep. stone Campbellite yes. church, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's got a complicated lineage as well, but you could you could follow it all the way back to Stone Campbell. But and that's the thing. That's why I think in one sense Joseph resonates with both of us. Right. 
because we understand the project. We understand what he's. We're, yes. And I even yeah. tell people, I said, when when Joseph goes and when we hear the whole first vision story fleshed out, and God's kind of given the admonition, you know, they they're, 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 they're these philosophies of men and condemns all these groups. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of stuff I agree with there. That in one sense, there I agree that the state of Protestant America was very. Uh, needed a restoration in one right, sense. Right, right. You, you hear, you, you come up like philosophies of men, for example. Yeah. The, the thing that pops into my mind is, well, no creed but Christ. So that was the solution of that movement. Like, let's just collapse the creeds. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we're silent, yeah. right? And so the, the authority structure for that restoration movement terminated on the Old and New Testament, but the authority structure in the LDS movement grew, beyond mm. scripture, right? It's incorporation of the Book of Mormon. It's incorporation of, uh, of modern or latter day prophecy through a prophet, uh, canonized and collected in doctrine and covenants, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it's obviously two different solutions, but addressing the same problem. Like how do we, how do we get back to this one faith, one Lord, one baptism uh, that we're, we're supposed to be as New Testament mm. believers? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's in one sense why, like, I remember as a little kid, I was like, man, the Bible ain't working anymore. Hmm. People don't believe in the Bible, and our world is getting secular, and everything's, and this is early 80s, right? And I was like, we almost need a new Bible, is what I thought, that addresses our modern ills of our society. And then I hear about this other young boy that encountered scripture, that addressed the ills of its time, and addressed many of the concerns. So that resonated with me, man. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes yeah, it makes sense. Um, and and it's uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting. It, I find that interesting that it was kind of our origin story. Yeah, so far. we have similar origin <laughs> stories. We come from like the same background, same uh, backyard, and yet. And I, do you think there's actually a third person from Northwest Indiana that's that's like us? Because I think we're probably it, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you're out there, please let us know. Please let us know. Um, we'd love to get together with you at Shoops. Shoops Hamburgers, the best, best Hamburg place, and you know that already, of course. whoever you are. But unless you like Minor Dunn, and then no, we won't. We won't here. be doing it, at Minor Dunn. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. It, we might be. We might. We might be it. I don't know. So maybe we'll do uh, House of Pizza or Aurelio's Pizza. Aurelio's, right? Aurelio's. Okay. Yeah, so that's that's what we'll do. <laughs> so so yes, yeah, we're, we're two unique birds. Obviously, we established that. Now, before we move on to the the group that most fascinates you, was there anything about Joseph Smith in the early days of the Restoration? that you wanted to talk about? Well, it's your interview. Well, we talk about whatever you want to talk about. I, I mean, there's so much to oh, talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah I, I'm really fascinated in doctrine and doctrine yeah. making. Um, we, could, we could talk about Well, that's the thing. So, and, because see, what it, see, for a lot of people, the, the, the story of Mormonism is that you have the martyrdom and then you have Utah. Mm-hmm. And then you have the main branch and that's it. Mm-hmm. And what's so fascinating is the story of the people that did not go to Utah. But they had everything, the, the development of Joseph Smith and the doctrines and everything like this, and King Follett and all the, the polygamy and all these things that were going on up to 1844. There were also other people that did not follow Brigham Young that stayed back. Mm-hmm. And I think probably as we talk about the development of doctrine, we, we should also talk about this gentleman named James Strang. <laughs> sure. And let's talk about a different path of the restoration. Sure, yeah. That didn't go to Utah. Yeah, well, the, so there's a lot that didn't. Um, but when you're talking about the development of, of um, doctrine, the, this, the seeds were planted before Joseph Smith's assassination in 1844 
for somebody like James String to come along. And what I mean by that is, if you, you have to imagine uh, that doctrine making was, was a critical element to early Mormonism, especially as it surrounds issues like authority or gathering to Zion. We're trying to retrieve or restore the ancient order of things uh, and, and pull back from the, eventually the pre-mortal existence, but from the garden to the new garden that's supposed to be coming, right? Okay. And so almost like year by year, you could, you could see doctrine developing. So depending on when you join the Latter-day Saint movement, you, you might have signed up for one thing, and then yeah. four or five years later, the, the church has changed. Not, not just in like physical location. Okay, we start Kirkland, now we're going to, we split the church and we're in Missouri, but then we get kicked out of Missouri. But also, and also like ecclesiastical structure, so it was a very simple, flat, all things done by common consent early on, and then it becomes kind of the priesthood hierarchy. You get the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthood, and you get 70s and apostles. It's just growing. If you join the church early in the, in the, in the early 1830s, it looks very different than in the early 1840s. Yeah. So I find it interesting that a lot of people that join James String are those that have been around the movement, and they've, they prefer the, the old school. With the, some of them even called it primitive Mormonism. Like they're more interested in seer stones and plates. Uh, they they're they're anti polygamy. They they want monogamy. Um, they're they're still lured by the call of restoration of the ancient order of things and the gathering place Zion. They are very um, they're very aware of uh, what they call the Lamanite mission. So they mm. want to preach the restored gospel to the indigenous peoples whom they believe uh, descend from the from tribes of Israel. So um, it, if you want to start with James' story, you can't start in 1844. You have to yes. start in, in, in the 1830s. Exactly. Right? Um, so 1844, famously, Joseph Smith is assassinated as well as his brother Hiram. And Sidney Rigdon is not the, you know, well-liked. And so we have a complete removal in, in a matter of hours yeah. of, of, the, of the first presidency or the, the, the top three. Um, and, and, and there's a succession crisis. Um, uh, who, uh, John Hamer has yeah. a great book, uh, Scattering of the Saints, mm -hmm. and it, it's got a visual timeline, really well done. Um, I think actually edited it. It's got it's contributions from Vicky. Vicky has a, a chapter, and Vicky Speak does. So everybody goes everywhere. Um, but the thing that's fascinating to me about that story is uh, this man, James Drake. Right. And now, let's talk, before we talk about the succession crisis and all this other stuff with James. Why don't you give some background on James Strang? Sure. Who was James Strang? Yeah, so James Strang, um, he, he comes from a French background, uh, immigrants, I think maybe two or three generations before him. He's born in uh, Cayuga County, New, New York, in 1813. Uh, so he, he grows up in the same region as Joseph Smith, not quite contemporaries, right? Joseph Smith's older than him. Um, and uh, he, James Strang says he has kind of a, an ordinary childhood, um, but if you read his diary, part, part of it was ciphered, actually, and so one of his sons deciphered it. He, he had incredible ambitions. Um, he wanted to marry the Queen of England. Um, he, wanted, he thought the, the country was going to be broken, into, uh, broken up into civil war, and he wanted to stand up and, and, and take power and, and to lead us back to unity. Hmm. He was a temperance lecturer. He was a preacher. Um, his family uh, were Baptists. 
Um, he, he was a postmaster and a newspaper man and a lawyer. So he's a very intelligent, intelligent guy. And um, he ends up in the Wisconsin Territory in 1843 uh, by invitation from some of his in-laws, I believe. He marries a woman named Mary, and her family's starting to move out there. And this family uh, knows another Smith family, unrelated to the Smiths, who are Latter-day Saints. Okay. And this is his first introduction kind of to the, to the LDS faith tradition. 1843. 1843. Wow. Super late, yeah. as far as like the early story is concerned. He's converted and baptized uh, in Nauvoo in February of 1844. He says, by Joseph Smith, and is given a blessing by Hiram Smith. I don't think we can verify that, okay. but, but that's what he claims. That's what he claims, okay. And um, if, you're, if you know your history, um, around 1843, 1844, um, it's a pretty tumultuous time. We know what's coming in 1844, the summer. But there's also a, a, a group called the Council of 50 that's meeting um, to discuss uh, what are we going to do to bring about the kingdom of God on earth while at the same time stopping all of this Gentile opposition persecution. I, I am convinced James was likely aware of those conversations, although he's not obviously a member. And he proposes to Joseph Smith, hey, why don't we move up to the Wisconsin territory? And uh, apparently that conversation did take place, but James receives a letter shortly after Joseph Smith is murdered, called the Letter of Appointment, mm -hmm. which, if you read it, states very implicitly, not explicitly, but implicitly, that Joseph Smith has appointed James Strang to be the successor of the church should Joseph Smith die. Okay. And that's his kind of the beginning of his uh, claim to the, to the succession. Is this an authentic letter? I don't believe so. Okay. I believe it was forged. Um, I know that... If if you there's a, there's a lot of reasons we could we can go into. I've seen it. Mm -hmm. I've seen the letter. Oh. It's it's currently housed in the Beinecke Library at Yale. Okay. Um, so I've I've actually been I did the stupid thing of I took a selfie with it <laughs> um, on a dare. Uh, but I've seen it. I've held it with my own hands, and I know that doesn't mean anything um, more than just a subjective experience. But it. It doesn't resemble Joseph Smith's signature, his handwriting, nor any of the scribes that he, he used at that time. Okay. Um, but here's the tricky part about that letter. Uh, it's, it's fairly indisputed that the back of the letter is authentic. It has a stamp from Nauvoo uh, with, a, with a date, June 19th, I believe, and there's a little speck that got wedged in the stamp, and all of the letters that were outgoing that day had that exact same speck. That night they cleaned it, and then the twentieth they don't have that spec. Oh wow! So that's the that's the that's James String's argument. How in the world could the letter be a forgery if uh -huh. uh, the stamp is authentic? And I think there's explanations for why there or how it, how it could still be, but that would take up the rest wow. of the interview. Wow! No, that's really interesting to think to even speculate about that because one thing you could say in, in favor of the letter is that what you had said it's implicit, not explicit. And if you were going to just, I'm going to do Evel's, Evel's advocate sure. here. If I was going to forge something, I would make it really clear that I'm his, I'm the guy, not ex sure. more explicitly, implicitly. Would that be an argument in favor of its authenticity? I, I think so. And it's another argument in favor of its authenticity is that be, because it's so implicit, um, the letter is merely Joseph Smith um, uh, desiring to establish a stake in the Wisconsin mm -hmm. Territory, not that the entire gathering of the LDS tradition right. would, would come to him. 
Um, but that is not how James interpreted it or even argued it. Um, but, uh, and this is something that I, I don't think it's talked about much in this part of String's story, that is not his primary argument for authority. Right. That's not his primary argument. His primary argument for authority is he was ordained by an angel at precisely the exact moment that Joseph Smith was assassinated, okay. or at least in that hour. Right. Angel comes, uh, anoints him with oil to this high priesthood, he says, and then he's gone. Now, so what's the name of the angel? Do we have a name? We don't have a name for the don't angel. Don't have a name, okay. No. Um, and there's two accounts of that vision. One is that an angel came, and two, that there were many angels, and then one angel stepped forward and, and ordained him. Okay. But that's, there's, that's, as far as I know, those are the only two accounts, and they're both written by him. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. So that's his primary argument. I was ordained by an angel. And that's, that's important uh, if you're thinking about like the, the, the grand story of the, uh, the restoration, as Joseph Smith tells it. Angels are really important. And so... Um, here's, here's what I mean earlier when I said, like, early Latter-day Saints were attracted to James because um, I, I want God to appoint the next prophet by an yeah. angel. And here's this guy saying uh, that it's true. And he's got a letter, apparently, to back it up. And so he begins to win converts in that way. But that, that's not the... So we have the angelic appointment. We have this letter of appointment. We have... Uh, let me just start talking about, so now we have this guy who's making a claim. And, and by the way, he was a serious contender for, the, for being the successor to Joseph Smith because there are many people that moved up to Wisconsin and they were engaging him, including William Smith. Uh, even John Bennett makes an appearance. I mean, George Adams, just talk yeah. About there's, how, how yeah. he was kind of viewed at the time during this period of time. Yeah, so I, uh, I hesitate to say he was a serious contender um, but he is a serious rival to Brigham Young. Okay, serious I'd put rival. It like, okay, I would put okay. it like that, yeah. Okay. And um, there was a lot. I think Vicky Speak estimates somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 Latter-day Saints would come in and out of his church at some point. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, compared to the, to, to the total population of, of the Latter-day Saint movement in the United States at that time. Doesn't sound like a lot of people today, but back then that was. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, he, he, he begins um, to gather... Uh, his following in a in a spot called Vori, which was Spring Prairie in Wisconsin, outside of Burlington, modern day Burlington, and um, he he tries he immediately tries to uh, convince the twelve that he is he's been appointed, and um, as you can imagine, the twelve rejected him. He was excommunicated, um, and so. Uh, a year after his excommunication, I want to say, I think his excommunication was like in. October 1844, and then by that following fall, 1845, James has big news. Okay. He has discovered plates. Okay. So now we have another data point. Another data point, yeah. That, you know, so, so we have these, these other things, that these claims that are being made. Now we have a parallel, a direct parallel to the problem. Many parallels. Right, we have many, many parallels. Yeah, many, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's one of the things James is doing. Whether you believe him or not, what, what you can't deny is that there, there are parallels. Now, these parallels can be, you know, incidental. They could be coincidental. They could be fabricated. But there are parallels, right? So the, you, you, James String gets the Urim and Thummim. Um, James String is appointed by an angel. Like James String, even in the letter of appointment itself, uh, the language is lending itself to this, like, baton passing from one prophet to another. Joseph says he's taken up in the whirlwinds of Elijah. And so you, you've got this idea of like Elijah is going to die. He's going to pass the prophetic uh, torch to Elisha, right? Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, there's a lot of parallels going on here. 
Yeah, and the, the plates one is, is a big one. And um, this, this, this wins a lot of converts. Um, and let's just talk a little bit about that. You mentioned he had the Urim and Thummim. Was it a seer stone or was it the spectacles? Say. He doesn't. He say. just refers he just to says as Urim and Thummim. Okay, and so he and then and, and talk a little bit about the describe the plates and maybe the process of translation. Yeah, so the so he uses Urim and Thummim to locate the plates. Oh, okay. I don't think he uses them to translate. Interesting. Them. If if I'm mistaken, somebody please correct me. And the location of the plates are, are under a tree at a location called the Hill of Promise, which is in Vori, which is in Wisconsin, which is where Joseph, through the letter of appointment, ostensibly told the church to gather. And uh, the plates are, there are three um, plates, double-sided. Uh, there's text on some of them, writing on one or two of them, I, if I remember correctly. And it's a very short translation. Um, uh, James Strang publishes it in the fall of 1845. And uh, it, it is, it, it, it's from a, from a man named uh, Raja Manshu of Arito. I think a play on Vori. Okay. And this is, a, this is kind of a, a warrior figure, a leader uh, among the Nephites. And he's making a prediction that uh, he, he's going to, to die, or that in the future, in this area, a future prophet's going to die, but then in this exact location in Vorito, or Vori, he'll promise, another prophet was going to rise in his place. And so, um, if you're if you're looking at it in like the timeline of the Book of Mormon, and that's where you want to put it, you can imagine the Lamanites are closing in on um, Mormon and Moroni, okay. and they go past Raja, and they kill him on their way to get to. So this is like a last. Trust me, this is going to happen. He dies, and then they finally get to Mormon and Moroni, and then there's the end of the Nephites, right? So okay. that's that's where these plates where I think James is trying to situate this in the grand narrative of the And the just of so I know, it, was this called the Hill of Promise before, or no. was it named by James as no, the this, Hill of the Hill of Promise is, on the, is near the banks of the White River in okay. Wisconsin, and it was by an old mine. I think it was a lead mine. Okay. And uh, this, this hill is there. The, the uh, followers of James Strang today own that property. Okay. So if it's private property. It's held in trust, but they own that property for a number of reasons. But one of them is it's obviously very significant to them. Uh, this is this is kind of where the uh, the next chapter in the reception of ancient revelation is coming to us from. So just real quick, just to clarify, because uh, Joseph Smith gave the name Hill Cumorah to Hill Cumorah. Uh, the Hill of Promise was that the name. I believe the Hill of Promise is in the translation. I'm not. Oh, okay, so that's where the remember. name. Okay, yeah. so that's okay. So it could so, be again if I'm wrong. Okay, great. That's yep. so. So again, this is a very interesting parallel because you have your own Hill Cumorah in Wisconsin where plates were found. Correct, but and not. It, but not. So I don't want. I don't want viewers or listeners to imagine like these plates were like stacked and then there's like some that are going to be locked away until a future time. Like, no, these there was like three. It would. They were tiny. Little, you could hold them in your hand as far as like facts and So it would be more like the Kinderhook plates? Some, something similar to that, okay. yeah, as far as like size and, and material are concerned. Okay. The, the thing that, that was different with Strang's um, approach, though, was whereas Joseph had witnesses to the plates, James had witnesses who dug up the plates. Okay. So uh, James says that the Urim and Thummim show him the location of the plates buried beneath a tree on the Hill of Promise. And then instead of digging them up himself, he goes and he gets people as witnesses to come and they dig it up and they're the ones that find it. Okay, that's... And I believe, well, no, no, yeah, yeah. So that's a... Okay, wow. That's a different, that's a difference, but a similarity at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and of course, we as outsiders, we, we look at the claims of the Restoration 
And how are we to differentiate between Joseph Smith's claims and James Strang's claims in, in the sense that, you know, why is Joseph valid, but James isn't valid? Those are the questions we would bring to the table as outsiders as well, wouldn't you say? Sure. And uh, those questions are answered back earlier, I believe, in, in the succession. Mm. Like was what, what, what was the way forward for the restoration movement at the moment of Joseph Smith's death? And it, you, you really, at that point in time, um, you, you've, you've, got, you've got one primary trajectory and then a ton of offshoots, yeah. right? So it depends on, again, I, I think if you, if you were more interested in um, angels and plates and Urim and Thummim and those types of things, and there was one uh, woman, uh, Strangite, who said, hey, I, if, if God's going to appoint one prophet in one way, then shouldn't we expect him to, to appoint the next prophet in the exact same way? That's why I followed him. Another man, um, Thompson, this is where the Thompson came from we were talking about earlier. Um, uh, he said, I go for the man with the tools. In other words, the Urim and the Thummim. Right? Mm -hmm. So these are really convincing arguments for, for, this, for, for his followers. The bulk of the people, though, those are not convincing arguments. And for them, they're looking at these similarities and they're like, come on. Okay. These are a little too convenient. They're a little okay. too on the nose. Um, so I... I, probably the same questions we have today were the exact same questions that were being asked back Fascinating then. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Wow, wow. And, and of course, um, just a little bit more, we talked a little bit about, the, but he was a pretty well-educated person, too. He was much more educated than Joseph Smith. I would say so, yes. Okay. Yeah. He was a school teacher at some point as yeah. well. So, yeah. so he's, and, and I didn't realize, I mean, I wish I knew more about James Strang than I did. I, you know, a lot of the time we were talking, man, I should have known that. And I probably read it at some point, I just didn't retain the information. But he's, he's a Really, just a fascinating guy. Absolutely fascinating. And, 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 and so, like, I felt, I tell people, I said, I fell in love with Joseph reading No Man Knows My History and Rough Stone Rolling. Yeah. Um, how, how, how do you engage James Strang? As any, just from a, from a scholarly level, but also from, from, as being an evangelical. Yeah, so it's, it's a part of the, it's a part of the LDS story. Yeah. Right? Um, I'm not making an authority statement. I'm not making a truth statement. I'm making a historical statement. This is part of the LDS story. And it's just a really fascinating part of the story for me. Not, not only for the things that we just talked about, but as the story progresses, um, James uh, establishes a, essentially a theocratic uh, proto-communistic society yeah. on an island in Lake Michigan, which is we grew up very close to. Yeah. So like Lake Michigan has a little place in my heart. Yeah. And, uh, and, then, um, and then he holds a coronation ceremony uh, claiming that he would be the king of the kingdom of God on earth as kind of a viceroy until Christ would descend and usher in the millennium. Whoa, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting too. Well, and of course, right? this is another parallel with Joseph because he was crowned king of the world as well. Yes, but, but Strang, Strang um, follows, he, he really takes that trajectory forward. So, so build it takes, upon builds the, upon it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So where's the connection? Like, how would James have gotten that information, those types of things? What you're referring to is uh, the Council of 50, which not everybody was privy to. But um, as far as I'm aware, at least five, if not six, members of the Council of 50 at some point were a part of James's movement or even part of James's leadership. And I think probably George Adams is the prominent figure there. George Adams stays with Strang for quite a while. And his story is crazy as well. It ends up in Jaffa, Israel. Oh, wow. Uh, and so we don't have time to go there. That's for the next interview. Yeah, yeah, there you go. We'll talk about George Adams. He's a, he's, 
He's crazy. Anyway, well, he's not crazy, but the story is crazy. But yeah, so he, that's how I think he would have gotten that information. Okay, okay. And then uh, I want to talk a little bit more about some of his theological developments, a little bit more about the sure. history. But yeah. James C., let's just talk a little bit about Bennett. John Bennett makes an appearance yes, to James Strang and, and kind of has an impact on the movement, would you say? Yes, he does. Okay. Yeah, so, so John Bennett is a notorious figure in LDS history. Um, he is, uh, uh, I forget the exact rank, but lead. A lieutenant general of the Legion of Nauvoo, correct me if I'm wrong, he was mayor, um, he had uh, something to do with the establishment of what would have been like a university in Nauvoo. He climbs the ranks, social ranks and ecclesiastical ranks very, very quickly. And uh, he's not a man of character. I think that's probably, that's pretty well established. Mm -hmm. um, he's uh, given over to alcohol and um, Whatever you think about the spiritual wifery system, um, even by its own standards or rules, he was he was breaking them, and so he he gets kicked out. Forty three, forty three in in Nauvoo. I, I don't remember. I'm not as familiar with that part of the history. But the second he hears about James Strang's claims, he writes James a letter, and it's very uh, flattering. It's very it, 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 he's he's he is asking, he's begging for an invitation to be restored, and James. Um, I don't know why he said basically like come on, mm -hmm. and uh, with with um, John Bennett, I think you could probably draw a tie to a few things. One, um, Strang starts an organization called the the Order of the Illuminati um, that has kind of a maybe maybe what they're doing with that is they're trying to restore Freemasonry mm -hmm. to its purest form, which was which you know was was going on in Nauvoo as well. So he's following that trajectory, and I think John Bennett helps in that area. Um, but more importantly, if I had to pinpoint where does polygamy enter the Strang story, it's probably a jump in it as well. Okay. Uh, because James is a, is a vehement uh, anti-polygamist in the very earliest days of his movement. And, and one of his arguments, he, he basically had a threefold argument. One, why are you going to follow a prophet, being Brigham Young, who wasn't ordained by an angel or wasn't appointed like I was? Two, why do you want to go into the wilds? You're going to die in that desert. You can come to the fertile dales of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Three, do you really want to go follow a group of people that are going to practice polygamy? We're not going to practice polygamy. He has a very famous line in one of his newspapers. He's considered his opinion on this matter unchangeable. Mm -hmm. And so that was really attractive to people that were like, I'm not. I'm, I'm sold on the restoration movement, not sold on uh, uh, the the plural marriage. But here's a guy who says he's not going to do plural marriage. I'm going mm. going this way, and it probably wouldn't surprise people to know that most of the people that went to Strang because of his you know pro monogamy views are going to end up eventually in the re reorganization. Absolutely, the yeah. reorganization, right? Um, in fact, like the seedbed of the reorganized church is probably disaffected. Uh, Strangites. Strangites. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. yeah that's very true. So, yeah. uh, so John Bennett, um, he he's in the movement actually pretty briefly. Um, mm -hmm. He he gets excommunicated by a council by Strang for the same reasons, um, uh, like anger, alcoholism, womanizing, those types of things. And Bennett's such an interesting character because this dude, he, even though he writes this book blasting Joseph Smith and Mormonism and all this kind of stuff. He's years later going after Joseph Smith III, saying, "Hey, hey, I want to, I want to reach out to you. I want to be included in your group." It's crazy. This guy never could quite let go of Mormonism. He was always no, trying to find uh -uh. an opportunity. No, I, 
there's no person like him that I can think of in the audio story. He's he will not quit. No, he won't. Yeah. yeah. And, yep. and so and it's just a fact because he's often viewed as a, an enemy. But it was interesting how even after he did his his expose on it, he still his life still was part. Mormonism still played a role sure. in his life. Yeah. And he, he yeah. kind of wanted. And to when was the expose there. published? Was that forty three? I think it was, it was yeah, shortly yeah, after yeah, his excommunication. Yeah. You're talking within a year or two. Yeah. He's he's begging James for right. a position for a seat at the table. Yeah. Even after all that he did. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's just it's an interesting thing. And yeah. so this is the other thing too is, you know, uh, he, he he of course we have the plates. Okay, so we have that, that short translation that he did. But then we also have more scripture yes. coming out of the movement. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yes, so this is an 1848 uh, edition of what's called the Book of the Law of the Lord. So these are um, pretty rare. There's not too many of them. Um, no, I'm assuming that was rebound. This, no, no, no. This is, this is an 1848 edition. So this is, uh, this is printed in uh, Burlington or, uh, you know, at the, at the current church there in Spring Prairie. Um, yeah, 1848. Um, but you can see on the title page, and maybe we could put a picture up there later, but uh, printed by command of the king at the Royal Press, St. James A.R.I. is the date that it was printed. And as far as we can tell, that means something like the date of the first year of the, the reign of King James. This, so you're saying this is for me. This is an astonishing... This, uh, uh, I'm sorry, did I say 1849? No, uh, 1948. Oh, 1948. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Saying, okay. Huge correction. Yes. Yes. Holy cow. I'm yes. Just, <laughs> please. Yeah. These are still extremely rare. 1948. Okay. 1948. Um, uh but the book of the law of the Lord is translated uh, in the winter-ish, because it's, it's hard to put, put that timeline together. Maybe if you ever have Vicky speak on, she can help with this better. Sure. But, um, in the winter of 1849 to 50, um, and the the book of the law of the Lord, the part most of it, um, James says, is uh, the the text that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, okay. and that anything that we have in the Torah. That has anything to do with, um, you know, uh, the, the law is derivative of this. So the Ten Commandments, derivative of this. Uh, ceremonial law, those types of things, derivative of this. Uh, this is the core of the law. Um, but there's also um, commentary that James String gives and revelations that were given to him as he's translating this document. Okay. So this is more, it's probably, it's not the book of the law of the Lord. It's a library that contains the book of the law of the Lord. It's probably a better oh, way to think about it. Okay. Um, and one of the, one of the more famous um, uh, revelations that James gives is uh, the celebration of his coronation is supposed to be played out in perpetuity. So uh, July 8th, 1850, he's crowned king. There's a revelation in this book that says, hey, we're going to celebrate that every single year. Okay, now let me so, see that real yeah, quick. Yeah, this is so fascinating to me because I was, I was actually talking to a scholar and we were discussing this and that there actually, he gives number counts in here. Yeah. Of, of, uh, of uh, like at the end of it, he'll give a number count. like Just like many, a lawyer would at that. In so the, that's in what a lawyer age. would yes. be doing. Yep. So is that more of a, see, because I thought maybe he was familiar with like, uh, biblical numerology or Kabbalah, <clears throat> nothing like that? Per personally, I don't think so. I think what he's doing is he's following a common practice of uh, oh. <coughs> legal writers in, okay. in his day. I could be wrong. That's okay. just my stab at it. I don't know if he's ever, he ever said why he did that. Okay. So I, I just thought maybe he had some knowledge of, you know, like of num numbers and scriptures. And I, I, I was just, just kind of, that's another unique function of the book is that he has that in there. And, and it's 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 so it's like a book of revelations, but it's also a 
the, uh, the more old records that he's <laughs> kind of being revealed. So yes. it's kind of a, a mesh of maybe like the Book of Mormon and Doctrines and Covenants put together, which is kind of... There's no narrative. No narrative. Okay. Yeah. So it's law, it's commentary on the law, and it's new revelations. Okay. Very interesting, yeah. very interesting. Now, the other thing, too, is what makes this movement so unique is that it's about the only Sabbatarian church in the Restoration. Correct. What, so, uh, was that because of his, he wanted to go back to the... Yeah, we'll it's in the book that. of the law of the Lord. Yeah, what's so the reasoning? Part, of, part of the retrieval of the ancient oral things is um, in the fourth commandment is you shouldn't break the Sabbath, you should keep it. And so James read that as... <clears throat> um, he... he, he Followed the idea, if I remember correctly, that Constantine, so this is this kind of mythological history here for, for Christian history, but Constantine moved it. He moved the day of worship. Mm. And we need to retrieve that. So the, the Sabbatarianism was really popular in the 19th century. The Seventh-day Adventist movement came out of it. But actually it started, if I'm not mistaken, uh, prior to Joseph's day and during Joseph's day with the Seventh-day Baptists. Right, right. So it was a kind of a Baptistic mm -hmm. retrieval of, of the Sabbath. Um, and there was a whole to-do. Uh, in newspapers around Joseph Smith's time, like one guy was like, hey, if the Constitution means anything, we should be able to ce celebrate the Sabbath when we want to. Like, this is a really big debate. Mm -hmm. um, the side of it that comes down for James is Sabbatarianism. We're not going to celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday. We're going to celebrate on Saturday. Yeah. And, and it's something they practice till this day. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it, and, and you're right, because it actually, in one sense, do, it predates the Seventh-day Adventist Church, because Ellen White and her oh, ideas yeah. didn't oh, yeah. come across till 1860. Do we have any uh, knowledge that his writings on the Seventh-day or on Sabbatarianism may have influenced any other movements like the Seventh-day Adventists or anything? I have no clue. Okay. I, that's a really interesting question. And the, the only thing I can think of outside of his own writings is... I think he had. I think he had a school of the prophets on Beaver Island. If I'm not mistaken, he commissioned at least one student to write on Sabbatarianism. So I, I think he's 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 smart in the fact that like he's when he's going to do doctrine making, he's going to distribute the workload oh, <laughs> essentially. And so part of his school of the, of the prophets is like students crafting essays and then like feeding them back to to the prophet or the teacher. And if I'm not mistaken, Sabbatarianism is one of the topics. Okay, yeah. I, I, I know, I mean, what's so cool, too, is, you know, the privilege that you and I have. We were talking about it last night. We are unique as evangelicals engaging the Restoration in that we are having conversations with people in the Restoration that other evangelicals will never have. And That's one of true. the beautiful <laughs> things about, like, when I was at John Whitmer, I got to meet some members of the church of course, and of course, uh, people know about John Hycheck as well. You know, is he, he's 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 uh, you know also part of this movement broadly as well. And then if you have the church that you're uh, associated with within Wisconsin, I just wanted maybe you could just talk a little bit about maybe the people of James Strang today. Uh, some of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. Mm. Salt of the earth. Yeah. Uh, very gentle. Very very. Um, they're very welcoming of me, not at first, but I don't blame them. Yeah. yeah. Um, why do, what do you care? What are you interested in? And, and to, to, to be in their corner a little bit, um, the, the Strangites have been beaten up <laughs> by the Brighamites and the Josephites for decades. Yeah. Uh, so outsiders are, they're, they're welcome, but it's a high fence you have to climb. Sure. Um, but once you do, it's just a, a low fence after that yeah. into in to being welcomed in friendship. I did my dissertation 
on one of their leaders, one of their prominent leaders after Strang's death named Wingfield Watson. And uh, they invited me to speak before their entire congregation wow. about my research. And still to this day, that was, it, I consider it one of, the, one of the greatest privileges I've ever had in my life. And I got uh, letters, like cards, for a couple weeks after. Oh, like women, people from all over, because the Strangites are scattered. Most of them are in Wisconsin, but they're, they're anywhere from like New Mexico to Louisiana, Missouri. Um, but they were sending me cards, like thanking me. And, and like, uh, I mean, I, t- I told them what I found. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't jump on that to tickle ears. Like, here's what I found, like, here's the history. Um, but they were very kind. Uh, there's one man in particular, Bill Shepard, I'm sure listeners may know. Who was a guest on Gospel Tangents. Who was a guest on Gospel Tangents, yep. Um, he's, he's one of the kindest men I've ever met in my life. Very sweet. Um, we, we try to keep up uh, in contact with each other by, by phone call. He was the one that pointed me to Wingfield Watson. I've, I've visited him a couple of times. They're just great, great people. And it's interesting to me, the, the presently, that branch, which is the largest, that branch has a pretty healthy, so I'm, as a pastor, you, you look at like the demographics of a church. Yeah. They have healthy demographics as far as age is concerned. Okay. I don't think, people are like, when, when is it going to be the right. candle moment for the String Eye Church? I don't think it's happening in our lifetime. Oh, so, okay. So I, I think the church will continue. And, and, and from their perspective, I think they would see that as uh, evidence of a kind of a, a remnant. They're waiting for the third prophet. And I know that might sound strange to Latter-day Saint viewers. <laughs> They're waiting for the third prophet. Okay, to, now let's, let's come. Okay, I love third prophet. <clears throat> is this going to be a resurrected person, or is this going to be a new prophet? How I don't know. So, so, so I cannot speak to their beliefs today or presently. Right. I don't know. What I can, what I can say is... Um, I can give you Wingfield Watson's perspective on this because sure. we're talking about a niche of a niche of a niche question. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Who's the third prophet? Okay, well, according to Wingfield Watson, um, he went through a couple of uh, ideas. The first idea was because God ordained James Strang at the moment of Joseph Smith's death, God had ordained the third prophet at the moment of James Strang's death, which was 1856. Okay. Where is that prophet? And so he spent years wondering... When is he going to come forward? He has to be out there. The church can't be without a prophet. Where is he? A- after a while, when he realized, like, that's probably not going to happen, he then shifted to a second idea of um, the resurrection of Joseph Smith and James Strang uh-huh. to be the, the, the final Latter-day prophets, kind of like the is it Moses and Elijah figures. Like the two witnesses, right? Oh. So Watson believed, and, and it's... You got to, it's, it's hard to, to pull all these things together in his letters, right? But he believed, as far as I understand what he's trying to say, is that Joseph Smith and James String would resurrect in the, in, the, in the moments preceding Christ's return, and that would be the final third prophet. Now, whether le- any, any person in that church believes that today, or is like, that's Watson, that's hogwash. Like, I have people in my, you know, theological tribe that'll say something like, that guy's full right. of it. I don't yeah. believe that. Yeah. Don't know. But that's one, one uh-huh. guy's perspective. I wow. think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, that is fascinating stuff. Man, I, I just love having these, the, the, finding stuff like this out. This is one of the reasons I do this show, folks, is I'm doing, just remember, I'm just doing this for me. You, you're along for the ride. I'm here, to, <laughs> I'm here to have this conversation, just happen to be filming it. Wow, that's so cool. And, you know, um, you know, we... We're getting back to the people of James Strang. And, of course, uh, I, I want to uh, tell people, too, if you've watched my 
part three of my interview with John Hamer. We do discuss uh, some of the various prophets, uh, you know, of the claimants during the succession crisis. Uh, that's a really good interview. People want to kind of want to have an overview of that time period as well. But before we get to the people, I do actually want to do talk about one more parallel because we have not only does so Joseph uh, another parallel we have is Joseph Smith runs for president, James Strang runs for state, state senator. Well, well, he wins, and he but he wins, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And so that's a parallel. And then we have the martyrdom. So we have a, yes. a, a martyrdom. So in many sense, like people say, like on some level, he is Joseph's successor. If you're just going by parallels, and of course we can go and say, well. Yeah, but he was just following the pattern. Well, I don't think James Strang's pattern was. And at the very end, I'm going to get assassinated. You know, it's, that wasn't part of his plan. But it, it's an interesting parallel that happened to him as well. Yeah, he's assassinated in the summer also of uh, 1856, all, almost to the anniversary of his, almost to the sixth anniversary of his coronation. I think okay. it happened a day after. Okay. Um, and he's assassinated by a Gentile and a disaffected member of, the, of Strang's community, which they pejoratively called as pseudos, as in like pseudo-believers, false okay. believers. Um, and he's, uh, he's assassinated on a dock in cooperation with the United States Navy, yep. by the way, yep. which is, uh, that's one of the, like, the thing I want to do next is like, I, I want to double click on what in the world was the Navy doing helping assassinate an American citizen. Uh, so look for that in a couple of years. Maybe. Yeah, I'll well, just remember, see, uh, they, they were rivals with Mackinac Island. Too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. So yeah. They, there they, was they, East Coast, West Coast thing yeah. going on in Lake Michigan. Um, accused of piracy, of polygamy, all these things. Yeah. But anyway, um, he's assassinated in 1856. He doesn't die immediately. Um, he's taken back to Voree. Um, he does not name a successor. Uh, I think maybe he tries to at the very end, but can't get it out. And then the, his last words were essentially, hey, every man take care of his family and scatter. So the, the exact opposite project of gathering, he says, scatter. Because if you scatter, they're not going to be able to persecute you as, as, as bad. Oh. And those are kind of the marching orders for him. You've got to, then you, you, the first presidency of that church is now gone, and you only have a handful of apostles left. And uh, then there becomes a, a succession de- debate, <laughs> which we could go into. But who, who, who's going to lead the church? And the book of the law, the Lord, forbids any kind of upward appointing. An apostle can't appoint a prophet. Prophets can only appoint apostles. And so there's only apostles. God's the only one that can do it. But as one apostle dies and another dies, the hierarchy shrinks, right, until you've only got a presiding high priest as the leader, who is Wingfield Watson. So it, it, it contracts in its leadership as well. Okay, so what is the highest office in the church today? I believe it's presiding high priest. Presiding high priest. Pres- okay. Presiding high priest. Now, this is what's so interesting, too, is that you have a people. See, not only there's a parallel with Joseph Smith, but we also have a parallel with a people that's been persecuted, a peculiar people, a people that are, in one sense, still probably the echoes of PTSD, of trauma that was done to them, Mm -hmm. making its way to this day. And just to think about how, in one sense, you have a church that's birthed out of tragedy, you have two prophets that were killed, and you don't, and, and you're just kind of moving along. But in one sense, you could understand why they would view themselves as a remnant, as a persecuted people, and that's kind of how you would. I could see how they would see that. How do they view themselves in the big scheme of things? 
I imagine they're, they're, they believe that they're going to play a major role in the end of days and that, that, that the restoration of their church, the restoration of their people is something that will be coming forth. Yeah, again, I, I don't want to speak to their present beliefs. Um, I'll let them, let them kind of describe what they say, but if they're, if they're on the trajectory that, that leaders after James Strang said, doctrinally speaking, it's probably fairly accurate. I think they would see themselves as remnant and in anticipation. Remnant and in anticipation. Wow, fascinating stuff. You know, it's great talking to, having these conversations. It's great having uh, these interactions. Not only you and I talking, and our homeboy, Rick, that's going to be talking to you soon, uh, but also, like I said, in general, speaking to people in the, in the restoration. Now, you uh, are, are really plugged in, not only to, of course, the, the Strangites, but also within uh, a lot of other quarters as well. You've made yourself known. You just gave a presentation at John Whitmer, so sure, you're yeah. well-known in the scholarly community. Maybe just talk a little bit about Kyle Bashir's and the restoration and your engagement with it as it stands today. Yeah, so I've, I've, um, I enjoy dialogue. I've been involved in um, interreligious dialogues between Evangelical and Latter-day Saint students for the past 10 years in Utah. Um, we're coming up on a trip in March. Um, I've been involved a little bit with dialogues with academics, hoping to, to continue uh, to participate and engage in those. Um, the first presentation, academic presentation I ever gave was on a string at woman named Eunice Kinney, and that um, I'm, I'm polishing that up. Uh, it, hopefully it'll be in a, in a journal. Um, second paper I ever gave, no, second paper I ever gave was actually at BYU's Church History Conference on the visions of Joseph Smith and James String. Um, comparing them, a little bit of what we were talking about earlier. Um, this most recent paper was uh, about um, a woman um, named Elvira Eliza Field, who uh, dressed up as a, a, a boy named uh, Charlie Douglas to pretend to be uh, James String's nephew to conceal his first plural marriage. And so uh, some things have been written about her. Uh, Vicki writes about her. Another woman, um, uh, Amy Derrigatis, has written on, uh, there's a daguerreotype of Charlie. And then I looked at, uh, Charlie actually published letters in uh, the, of String's newspaper. And so I kind of looked at her Writings is that that was fascinating in that paper, um, and then I'm presently writing a, uh, an introductory book to the Latter Day Saint faith and tradition um, for an evangelical publisher, Craigle, called Forty Questions About Mormonism, and that'll be due out at the end of the year, if not beginning of next year. Well, this is very exciting. So we're going to have him back on to talk about the book. Sure. And well, more in book reviews. Of course, we got to talk <laughs> about books, right? That's what it's all about, folks. And so, you know, Kyle, um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. I think it's really awesome. You made the drive from Mobile. And, uh, and, 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 and getting to know you better. I got to meet you at Whitmer. And uh, you're just a really awesome, cool dude. Um, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Because um, I think, and I'm glad I found a friend, a, a homie. Yeah, 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 of course. That, that, that yeah. We, we can talk like this for hours and go on, but we got to cut it short because we've got to have gospel tangents t in sure. the house, right? Yeah. But uh, I just want to thank you. And I just want to ask you, do you have any final words you'd like to share with the audience? Read more about Strang. <laughs> Yeah, reading that's not a selfish thing. It's a fascinating story. Start with Vicky Speaks' book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you ought to have her on. I oh yeah, it, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, she definitely will be coming on. Yeah. So, folks, I just want to thank you so much for sitting through this presentation. I know there are many of you who belong to various branches of the Church uh, of the Restoration. Uh, also, a lot of evangelicals out there who are fascinated with this story. I hope this episode has been a good introduction to James Strang. 
uh, for you because it's, it is a phenomenal story. And I wish I spent more time on it, but hey, I got this guy. I can just Good. give him a phone call. Um, so I want you to leave in the comments. What did you think about uh, this story? What do you think about James Strang and the, and the claims that he made? Um, and I want to also hear from atheists and, uh, in my audience as well, because I'm always fascinated to get a naturalistic view of these things as well. Uh, so do, just remember a few things, folks. In the description, if you would like to support, uh, financially support the channel, you can uh, support us via PayPal, as well as Patreon, as well as the merch store, mormonbookreviews.com, where you can purchase some fine quality products, including something like this hat. And uh, we'll have links in the descriptions to the books that we talked about as well. And I just remind you, uh, folks, the most important thing is all the voices of the Restoration will be heard here on Mormon Book Reviews. 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 On Mormon Book Reviews.